Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. So let's find out what's happening in Israel and cross to Sam. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. Glad to be with you. Thank you. What can you tell us, Sam, about this ruling? Look, I, here's what I here's what I, I will say. I, I think we need to first understand, obviously, that legislation is not just something that's theoretical to be debated. It all has consequences. Right. I think that at the end of the day, the, the court's ruling is in some capacity actually a much-needed win in some way for Israeli society. Everyone needs to remember that a majority of the country was actually against this particular bill. Even 60% of Likud voters, Netanyahu's party, were against this specific legislation. And there's very good reasons for this, and I want to just touch on something that I think is topical. Because when you look at the legislation, obviously... Uh, as the other gentleman said, there was uh, some level of capacity of it was, was to serve Netanyahu's personal interests. But there were also two other political forces involved. That would be the religious Zionist parties and the Haredi parties. The most important thing to Israeli society right now is security following October 7. Yes. That is the main principle that's important to, to Israel. All this judicial overhaul as a political program and what the consequences it would have been would have had drastic effects on the security of the state of Israel. And I want to explain to you quickly, if I can, just Please, why. Absolutely. The one political force, which was the which was the settlement movement run by Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzlel Smotrich, um, they seek to pass this legislation in order to remove the checks and balances of the Supreme Court, essentially so that they could expand the construction of settlements in the West Bank. Okay. Now, if you look at the security apparatus as it stands right now, You've got 75% of Israel's active military deployed, this is prior to October 7th, in the West Bank. Most of them are actually standing guarding settlements and not fighting terror cells. Now, if you account for that, it means that it leaves 25% of our overall military available to be spread across six other border fronts. Three of those border fronts have jihadist terrorist organizations on the other side. So this is by no means an effective military strategy in terms of the deployment of forces for anyone. It does not constitute secure borders for anyone. And October 7th proved that. We did not, it didn't matter how much technology above or below ground camera or radar systems that, that we had. At the end of the day, there's a significant issue in the deployment of our forces. No one, nothing can essentially replace um, uh, you know, forces on the gr- on the ground. Right. Um, the other thing was is the Haredi parties who want to basically who are doing this because of the interest of getting themselves full exemption from the military. So these two uh, these two political programs, eventually, which were which were a result or a consequence of the judicial reform, would have eventually come to a head. You can't increase territory which requires more forces and have your fastest growing population. Pool, uh, uh, expect exemption. Right. So basically, uh, you know, with regards to the security of the state of Israel, I think it's a victory from that lens. Obviously, there's people who are who think it shouldn't have happened during the war, and obviously there's some people who were for the legislation. But for the most part, we saw that there was some some sense of a majority against it prior to October seven. And it doesn't seem to have created the ripple effects that everyone was was concerned about throughout the country. Right. Going forward with the war still going on, 
What are the consequences that this will have for the, the current government, if any? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because last night there was there was uh, reports, sources from within the Likud, who I'll quote, said that judicial reform is dead. Uh, what was interesting to me on that is I think most of Israeli society already thought that it was dead on October 7th. Um, but clearly the government didn't in some capacity. But then you've got other, other people like Yariv Levine, who was actually the architect of the reform, who says that they will push back against this. Now, if they do happen to push back against this, what they and they try pass it and, and successfully pass it through the Knesset, it's very, very likely that it actually won't get struck down by the Supreme Court again, right. at which point the government would, it would essentially be very irresponsible because they'd be sending Israel into some level of constitutional crisis in the middle of a war. Yes. Um, all of these things have consequences. I don't necessarily see it happening um, right now as it stands. I wouldn't put it past certain members uh, of, of the current uh, government to do it um, as the war is coming to an end to try through before uh, essentially elections are held. Right. If we look at the um, the religious parties, the religious groups, what are their primary objections to doing national service? Because there are different levels that one can operate at in serving your country. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, the, the the primary uh, the you know to the primary thing is that basically they say that it's it's against. Uh, a Jewish law to serve in an army, uh, but subsequently we know both, you know, from other religious scholars that you know there's nowhere really in the scriptures or in the Talmud or really anything where 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 it makes such claim. Um, what it basically is is that they see studying Torah as an effective means of protecting the state of Israel. And while you know whether one chooses to believe that is can be true or not, I don't think at the end of the day that. Uh, that that we can kind of rely on the idea of um, you know having the fastest growing population uh, yes. refusing to do service um, rather than you know putting on a uniform like the rest of the public is expected. It also creates an unequal society in that capacity, and that's not good for anyone. Right. If we look at the communities, if they were to come in and to serve, what would that mean to the military? How how would that ease the burden that they're currently under? Well, look, I mean, it could be it could be significant in the sense of you would have more forces and therefore more equal deployment. Right. Um, I don't actually, to be honest, see it happening in, in, in reality. If we look at the polling, the institute I work at, at the po- uh, polling recently of uh, the Haredi, uh, Haredi community, about 90 percent have had no change in their view on the military exemption or desiring the military exemption despite the war. Um but of course, you know, all of this has consequences because the numbers in which I gave you, the 75% and 25% of how our forces are deployed prior to October 7th are absolutely not sustainable. Right. Um, they weren't sustainable before October 7th and they're certainly not sustainable after October 7th. So this all has consequences uh, in the sense of you can't sustain essentially what is happening in the West Bank without additional forces. Right. So, and and without additional forces as well, we've got to think about it this way, there's 150,000 people evacuated from their homes in the north and the south. Uh, let's even say Israel wins this war yes. uh, against Hamas and they, and they root Hamas out. You've still got Hezbollah in the north. 
the amount of forces deployed, as I've spoken about, you, I don't think that the 80,000 people evacuated from the north would feel comfortable going back to their homes in that capacity. So essentially what you've done is right. in order to maintain a border that is actually not part of Israel's sovereign territory in the West Bank, we've shrunken our northern and southern borders because people don't feel safe actually living there. So Israel needs to be very clear actually going on from now where its borders are and what its priorities are. Right. Because you can't continue essentially to, uh, to, to develop onto a territory which is not our sovereign territory and actually has no uh, benefit for us um, in terms of democracy, in terms of the Jewish fabric of the state, in terms of the security. We have to look at the people who have been evacuated from their homes. We have to uh, re-look uh, at the deployment of forces. Obviously, there'll be inquiries into all of this. What I'm speaking about is just one obvious factor that we're able to determine. We don't know what the inquiries will be because obviously they haven't even begun yet. But this is a this is a factor. It's a facts on the ground that that plays into it. And essentially, if it were up to me, if you have to redeploy the forces and pull forces out of the West Bank, put them on the north with Hezbollah, so right. 80,000 people can go back to their homes. And if that means that, you know, certain uh, uh, certain settlements that exist beyond the main blocks have to be evacuated into the main blocks, which would mean they'd still be in the West Bank, then for, for in my capacity, so be it. Uh, you know, I don't want to see that happen to anyone, but at the end of the day, uh, Israel needs to, going forward, make sure that it has secure borders, as evidenced by October 7th. And the situation as it stands um, was unsustainable, is unsustainable. And uh, the Haredi program, the religious Zionist program, essentially coexist in that capacity as they, as they have before. So something's going to have to give. Right. So talking about that coexistence going forward, what do you see as the future going forward now in terms of if they're not willing to come and serve within the within the military? How does Israel support itself and protect itself going forward? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be complicated because, you know, essentially for the rest of Israeli society, if you're called if you're called for your mandatory service yes. and you refuse, you get arrested. Right. OK. Uh, but now you've essentially had a population because of uh, for religious reasons who have not actually been sequestered to that law um, really ever uh, via a whole bunch of political agreements that have, were made already with Ben Gurion in 48 and very much cemented by Menachem Begin in the, in, in the early 80s but so you've, you've kind of set a standard that's de facto not the law uh, so basically, either you're going to implement a law, which uh, forcible conscription, yes. at which point anyone who chooses not to would, like the rest of the population, face arrest. Or, as I said, you're going to have to change your lines of defense, which means some level of evacuation right. uh, from the West Bank. Uh, so these are, these are, you know, I think people... We, we are obviously dealing, we're in the midst of a war, but there are questions about which direction Israel heads in after this war. And I think that there's going to be some very crucial questions and it's going to require some very brave leadership. Yes. And, um, and essentially, you know, we've been leading kind of an, un, an unsustainable political program in, in the country for decades now. Right. And I think after the catastrophe of October 7th, it might be the necessary time for society and, and obviously the leadership to reflect on the decisions that have been made 
to serve either short-term interests or to sh- or to kind of keep certain populations quiet and not create um, a fuss about things. Uh, right. Basically, the, the 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 decisions are going to be they need to be made which serve the best interests of the majority of the country, rather than favoring kind of you know political programs that represent six percent of the population or. 13% of the population. All right. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have. Sam Hyde, political researcher and writer. What does the historic ruling of reasonableness limitation law mean to the Israeli citizens?